The story of the Sikhs continues as the Sikhs flourish under the leadership of the newly anointed Guru Amardas. We will learn about his journey and we will meet the humble Bhai Jeta, who will go on to become Guru Ramdas, the fourth Guru of the Sikhs. We will also explore the mysteries of a prophecy that will forever alter the institution of the Guruship. This is co-producer and audio engineer Erica Wong, welcoming you to join us as this fascinating journey continues. As most men are fettered by the bonds of tradition and by imitating the ways followed by their fathers, ancestors, relatives and acquaintances, they continue without investigating arguments and reasons to follow the religion in which they were born and educated. Thus, excluding themselves from the possibility of ascertaining the truth which is the noblest aim of all human intellect. Therefore, we associate, at convenient seasons, with learned men of all religions, and thus derive profit from the exquisite discourses and exalted aspirations. These are the words of Akbar the Great, of the House of Zafar, who sat on the Mughal throne in Delhi in the late 1500s. The words are excerpted from a letter that Akbar had written. History has preserved the letter, but it is unclear whether it was addressed to King Philip II, who had ascended to the throne of Spain and Portugal, or to the governor of Goa, a Portuguese enclave on the west coast of India. In the letter, Akbar, born a Muslim, was acknowledging his very liberal and enlightened approach to other faiths and his openness to their ideas. Akbar was the grandson of Babur, who Guru Nanak had encountered and upbraided in Sayyidpur after his army had spread death and destruction in the Punjab. After that first meeting, the house of Guru Nanak and the house of Zafar were to have many memorable encounters in the next 200 years. Guru Amarda sat on the throne of Guru Nanak in the town of Goindwal. The news spread like wildfire. The Emperor Akbar was approaching Goindwal with a large entourage, which included battalions of Mughal and Afghan soldiers. The Sikhs of Goindwal were probably a little nervous, for the memories of the depredations of Babur's armies in the Punjab would have been still quite fresh. Besides, Akbar's father Humayun, who had been emperor before him, had visited Guru Angad in Kadur several years earlier. The Sikhs did not have very pleasant memories of that meeting either. Humayun had been on the run. He had lost his empire to Sher Shah Suri, and after a failed attempt to regain it, he had been retreating west. 
He had arrived in Lahore, desperately seeking ways to regain the throne of Delhi. As was common in those times, he sought divine intervention and cast about for any holy man who might be able to bless his enterprise. Humayu heard great praise in Lahore for Guru Nanak and his successor Guru Angad, and he decided to pay a visit to Kadur. The Guru was in his court at prayer, and his minstrels were singing. The deposed emperor was forced to wait for an audience which made him furious. When he was finally brought to the presence of the Guru, he was violently angry and put his hand on the hilt of his sword with the intention of striking Guru Angad. The Guru, undaunted, advised him to save his aggression for Sher Shah Suri and suggested that it was most unseemly for him to threaten people engaged in worship. Humayun left, chastened, but was determined to return. But by the time he had won back his throne, Guru Angad had passed away. Now, Emperor Akbar, the son of Humayun and the grandson of Babur, was nearing Goindwal. Surrounded by fierce warriors and all the royal trappings of his station, the Sikhs watched with growing apprehension as the cavalcade got closer. They could now see the sunlight glinting on the spears of the infantrymen and the gilded breastplates of the cavalrymen. Behind them came the emperor, seated on a magnificent gold howdah on the back of an elephant with formidable tusks. And then, to the surprise of the watching Sikhs, the procession slowed, then came to a standstill. The emperor's mahout lightly touched the elephant with his goad, and the beast knelt. Attendants scurried to place a stepladder by the side of the elephant, and the emperor descended. He beckoned to the commander of his guards, and instructed him to halt his company there, forbidding him to move any closer to the Guru's court. Then he took off his turban, adorned with an aigret studded with diamonds and rubies, and handed it to one of the attendants, instead putting on a simple white cap. He then gestured to another attendant, who knelt and took off his shoes. When the Sikhs understood his intention, they hastened to lay down sheets of fine silk and velvet on the ground to ensure that the emperor's show of humility would be as comfortable as possible. Before the emperor walked one of his attendants, carrying an ornate golden staff, which he periodically struck the ground with. The emperor looked at the silken sheets spread before him, and then bent to move them aside with his own hands. He then started to walk barefoot on the rough path. The emperor presented a resplendent sight in his regal attire. The poet Santok Singh describes his appearance as he walked towards Guru Amar Das. Siri Guru ke samip chal aave, ang bibhukhan sang sohave, jat roop ke jarti kade, Zahar Jot Jawahar Jare Damke Hira Argan Moti Bahu Mul So Babad Hoti Sundar Sukham Bastra Suhavit Hot Satue Man Chalavat To the Guru's side he does draw nigh, dazzling clothes and station high, bands of gold his wrists adorn, sparkling jewels monarch high born. 
Diamonds precious, pearls aglow, Of glory such a splendid show, Precious royal robes he wears, To plumb his glory no one dares. Guru Amardas was sitting by the side of the famous pool of Goindwal, a place of great serenity, which attracted thousands of the faithful. The mighty Emperor Akbar, before whom the entire world bowed, humbly saluted the Guru, gathered his limbs about him, and sat on the ground before him. Did you eat in the langar? the Guru asked the Emperor. Oh, what shall I eat? Akbar retorted. Today in the langar? We have unsalted porridge, said Guru Amardas. Then that is what I shall eat too. A Sikh was dispatched to bring a plate of unsalted porridge for the emperor, who sat on the floor and ate it with great relish, as though he was feasting at a royal banquet. The guru looked at him with a smile. The emperor expressed great admiration for Guru Amardas and Guru Nanak. Satt hota hai vaak tumhara suni sift kehat jagasara Sri Nanak ki kirat sare hindu turk saman uchare Kehan turk ham peer samana hindu an saban guru karmana Jiski azmat jagat majare abla uthan anek nihare Soi roop aap tum bhai adik sabin te azmat thiye Bade laab mujh dars tumhara karaj mero sagal sudhara Sooth you speak for ever true, songs of your glory accrue, the glories of Gurnanak Lord, sing Turks and Hindus one accord, the Turks call you a holy sage, the Hindus call you master mage, your majesty the whole world knows, each day your glory greater grows, vision you are of glory grace, Unrivaled majesty and praise, this blessed vision of your face, I know it will my woes efface. Akbar had seen the peace and contentment of Goindwal with his own eyes. He beheld the throngs of joyous devotees and the care that was lavished upon them. He was particularly impressed with the concept of langar and expressed a desire to support the Guru's efforts. I will make you a grant of land and anything else you might desire to support your efforts, the Guru replied. I have obtained lands and a rent-free tenure from my creator. My Sikhs devoutly give me the wherewithal to supply my kitchen. Whatever comes in daily is spent daily. And for tomorrow, we place our trust in God. We have no need or desire to accumulate wealth. The emperor, however, would not be denied. He begged that his gift be accepted and immediately had a land grant executed. Guru Amardas said that he would decide what to do with the land in the future. Thus ended a most convivial encounter between the house of Zafar and the house of Guru Nanak. More were to follow, but they would be far less salutary. (music) 
Guru Amar Das was accepted as the successor of Guru Nanak and Guru Angad by the Sikhs, but not all were happy at his ascension. Datu, the son of Guru Angad, who felt that he had been cheated out of his inheritance by a mere domestic servant, harbored great ill will towards the Guru. Datu sat on Guru Angad's seat in Kadur and issued the following proclamation. Amru is an old man. He is my servant. I am a prince of the Guru's line. His throne is mine. The Sikhs of Kadur, however, decided that only he whom the true Guru Angad had appointed should be the leader of the Sikhs, and many of them left the town for Goindwal. One day, some Sikhs who had not heard of Guru Amar Das's change of residence arrived in Kadur. As they were departing to see him in Goindwal, a sympathizer of Datu said to him, How can you possibly tolerate this? Your servant Amardas is sovereign, while you, his master, are reduced to nothing. These six have just left for Goindwal, carrying gifts that belong to you. Go see for yourself and take what is rightfully yours. Datu could not endure these taunts and early next morning he left for Goindwal. On beholding the Guru surrounded with splendor in his court, he berated him. Just yesterday you were a water carrier in our house, and today you have the temerity to call yourself Guru? He yanked Guru Amardas off the throne and aimed a savage kick at him. The Guru, completely unruffled, replied, Forgive me, O great king for my old bones must have hurt your foot. In order to avoid further confrontation, Guru Amardas left Goindval for his native village, Basarka, where he went into seclusion. Datu was now free to sit on the Guru's throne in Goindval and became very proud of his new position. The Sikhs, however, completely avoided him, and all the pilgrims who had come to Goindwal went away on hearing of his insulting behavior towards the Guru. On seeing the contempt with which he was regarded, he seized whatever he could, loaded his newly acquired wealth on a camel, and set out for Kadur. On the way he encountered robbers, who seized the camel with its load and gave him a sound thrashing. It was left to Pai Buddha again to seek out the Guru and bring him back to Goindwal. Datu, who by now was thoroughly ashamed of his actions and chastened by the Guru's humble response to his aggression, would trouble him no more. The Guru had many important things to do. He was already an old man when he ascended to the throne of Guru Nanak. He had an ever-growing flock to tend to and centuries worth of injustice intolerance and superstition to fight. Pand jamiye, pand nimiye, pand mangan viyaho, pando hove dosti, pando chale raho, pand mua, pand paliye, pand hove bandhan, so kyo manda akhiye jit jamme rajan pando hi pand upje pande bajna koe nanak pande bahara ekko sacha soe from a woman born in a woman formed a woman to wed you seek 
a woman your true companion, does she not your lineage bespeak? Passes when she another you seek, to a woman are you not bound? How dare you then to deem her low, who birthed every monarch crowned? From woman is each woman born, without her will not life accrue. Unborn of woman none excess, the only one is my lord true. These are the words of Guru Nanak. Who was unwilling to accept the lowly social status that women were relegated to in his time? More than 400 years before the enlightened West began to consider the notion that men and women should be treated equally, Guru Nanak had boldly taken a stand. In an earlier episode, we have already examined the state of women in Guru Nanak's time. Terrible social practices, some indigenous and others adapted from foreign cultures, were in place to oppress women. Women did not have access to education and were excluded from roles of power and influence. The practice of parda, or the veiling and seclusion of women, had emerged in the 7th century during the time of the Arab conquest of Iraq. In medieval times, it was adopted in India by Muslim families as well as by upper-class Hindu families. The parda was perhaps initially designed to protect women from harassment, but it had become yet another mechanism to subjugate women and limit their mobility and freedom. Widows were not permitted to remarry and were forced to live a lonely life, shunned and reviled as the bringers of misfortune. The ancient custom of sati, where the widow of a high-caste man would immolate herself on her husband's funeral pyre, was still in vogue. Widows were often encouraged and sometimes forced to burn, because it was believed that a woman who embraced the funeral pyre would bring great blessings and good fortune to her family. In a culture that valued male children over female, female infanticide was common. Guru Amar Das is remembered for the practical measures that he took to fight discrimination against women. He refused to receive the wives of kings and other high-born women who would appear veiled before him and discourage the practice among his followers. He actively encouraged widows to remarry and live fulfilled lives as respected members of society. He strictly forbade the practices of sati and female infanticide. Just as the Emperor Akbar administered his empire by dividing it into provinces, ruled on his behalf by governors, Guru Amarda similarly partitioned the Sikh spiritual empire into 22 districts. The Guru's representatives were sent out into all these districts to minister to the Sikhs. In a sharp departure from the norms of the time, many of the ministers were women. Once again, through simple practical steps, the Guru was ensuring that principles such as gender equality were actually implemented. Guru Amar Das had two daughters, Dani and Pani. The older daughter Dani was married to Pai Rama, who came from the same clan as Guru Nanak. 
The younger Pani was introspective by nature and spent a lot of her time in prayer. The Guru's wife, Mansa Devi, was eager to see her younger daughter married and settled into family life. She made a representation to the Guru, who agreed that the search for a suitable groom should be started. A faithful Sikh was deputed as the Guru's agent in the search, and Pani's mother decided to instruct him on the kind of groom he was to seek out for her daughter. Her gaze fell upon an extremely handsome young man who served the Guru, busy with his chores. Pointing to him, she said to the agent, I want a groom like that lad for my daughter. Guru Amar Das overheard the conversation and remarked, There is none other like this lad that God has created. The Guru had a long conversation with the young man and was satisfied that he would make a good groom for his daughter. He loaded him up with presents for his family and sent him to Lahore to inform his father so that the betrothal could be arranged. The young man went by Jitta, which means the eldest one, as he was the oldest child in his family. His name was Ram Das, and he belonged to a pious family from Lahore. Ever since he had been a young man, he had been a spiritual bent and spent a lot of time in discourse with holy men. His parents desired him to take up an occupation, and being a dutiful son, he became an itinerant vendor selling chickpeas that his mother would boil for him. One day, Jetta had stumbled upon a company of Sikhs who were singing hymns with great gusto to the accompaniment of cymbals and drums. When he asked where they were going, one of them replied, Come with us, brother. We are going to Goindaval to see Guru Amardas. There is great joy and peace in his court. Jetta Ever eager to join in spiritual pursuits needed no further encouragement and had readily joined their band. When he had arrived in Goindval, he had felt like he had come home. Immediately he had immersed himself in service, working in the kitchen, fetching firewood and water, and attending to the personal needs of the Guru. Whenever he had any spare time, he would join the Sikhs excavating the large tank that was being built in Goindval. Jetta had begun to be known for his devotion and his pleasant demeanor. He never had a harsh word for anyone, and there was no worker more diligent in Goindval. Jetta's clan descended upon Goindval, and there was great rejoicing at the nuptials. The relationship between a son-in-law and his father-in-law was fraught with sensitivity in the traditional culture of the Indian subcontinent. Sons-in-law were seldom seen, and it was commonplace for them to be fawned upon and pampered whenever they visited their in-laws. Rather than living in Lahore with his bride, Jetha set tongues wagging by deciding to live in Goindval with his father-in-law's family. This was unthinkable. A son-in-law who seemed to be tied to the apron strings of his wife's parents was the object of much ridicule. To make matters worse, Jetha showed no change in his attitude towards Guru Amardas. Rather than behaving like a haughty son-in-law, he continued to serve him faithfully. 
joyously performing every menial task he possibly could, much to the derision of many. Guru Amar Das, of course, noted and appreciated the young man's devotion and grew increasingly attached to him. The years passed. Three sons were born to Jetha and Bibipani. They were named Pirthichand, Mahadev, and Arjun. Guru Amar Das was growing old and he had decided that it was time to choose a successor. He decided to confer the land grant that Emperor Akbar had made upon his daughter Bibi Pani and instructed Jetha to build a home for himself on that land and also excavate a tank for the use of pilgrims. Jetha found an open, uninhabited tract about 25 miles from Govindwal and there he established a new village which was called Guruki Chak and ultimately Ramdaspur. He built a house for his family and employed laborers to excavate the earth for the construction of a tank. Several Sikhs took up residence there and a new community was formed. Guru Amar Das, of course, was planning for the future. He was fully anticipating that the next Guru would face opposition from his sons, Mohan and Mori, following in the footsteps of Guru Nanak and Guru Angad, he had instructed Jetha to create a new town, which was destined to become yet another great center of the faith. It was becoming quite apparent that Jetha was the Guru's favorite and would likely succeed him. Guru Amar Das's older son-in-law Rama was also a worthy Sikh and had served him faithfully. A lobbying effort started on his behalf. The Guru decided that it was time for a test. The Guru went to the great tank of Govindwal known as the Bauli and summoned both Jetha and Rama. Each of you shall build a platform for me by the Bauli, he declared. I shall sit on one in the morning and on the other in the evening. Jetha and Rama began their labors. When the platforms were completed, the Guru went to inspect them. The Guru looked at Rama's platform and declared that it was crooked. Rama, who had done a fine job building the platform, protested, declaring it was straight and true, but the Guru was adamant. Rama, barely concealing his irritation, built the platform a second time. Once again, the Guru pursed his lips and said it was still crooked. Rama looked at the beautiful platform and then at the Guru in utter disbelief. The Guru has grown old, he muttered. His reason seems to be failing him. Now it was Jeta's turn. Tear it down, declared the Guru. This platform is terrible. Unquestioningly, Jetha at once began to demolish it and build a new one. The Guru shook his head, and Jetha started again with a cheerful smile on his face. Seven times the Guru frowned, and seven times the platform was built with no complaint. 
Jetha humbly addressed Guru Amar Das. I am a fool, and you are the ocean of all knowledge. Your errant son begs your pardon for his meagre understanding. On hearing this, the Guru smiled and embraced Jetha. Seven times you obeyed my command. Seven generations of yours will sit on Guru Nanak's throne. Once again, the humblest of the Guru's disciples have been chosen. The now familiar and glorious spectacle of the formal succession unfolded. Guru Amar Das, having in every way tested Jetha and finding him to be perfect, sent for a coconut and five copper coins. The Guru summoned his sons Mohan and Mori and the principal six of Goindwal, including Pai Buddha, and addressed them. Guru Nanak in the beginning established the custom that the Guruship be bestowed on the most deserving. Having found Jetha worthy, I now bestow the Guru's throne upon him. Guru Ramdas shall be my successor. Guru Amardas descended from the throne and taking Guru Ramdas by the arm seated him on it. Pai Buddha once again applied the tilak, the saffron mark of sovereignty on Guru Ramdas's forehead. Guru Amardas, following the tradition started by Guru Nanak, humbly saluted Guru Ramdas. This was the last time that a humble disciple would be anointed Guru. For Guru Amardas had made a prophecy that was to have far-reaching consequences. Bibi Pani, of course, had been aware that her husband was the Guru's clear favorite, but she had not let the fact go to her head. She had continued to serve her father with much devotion. She would fan him, draw water for him, tend to his every need, and also work in the kitchen. And then one morning, before the investiture of Guru Ramdas, something happened that would forever change the destiny of her family and her descendants. The poet Santok Singh paints a vivid picture. One morning, Guru Amar Das rose before daybreak and, as was his custom, went to bathe. His daughter, used to serving him, approached to assist him with his bath. The Guru seated himself on a low wooden stool and shut his eyes in deep meditation. The Guru sat immovable and inscrutable like the Hindu god Shiva as he focused his mind. Just then, one of the pegs that supported the stool broke off, much to the alarm of Pani. She could see that her father was in the kind of deep meditative state that even the most accomplished ascetics can achieve only with great difficulty. She was concerned that if the Guru shifted his weight even slightly towards the broken peg, the stool would become unstable and his meditation would be disturbed. She looked around for something she could use to prop up the stool and stabilize it, but found nothing. So she balled up her fist and slid her hand under the stool 
so that the Guru's meditation would not be disturbed. Her delicate hand was crushed under the stool bearing the weight of the Guru's body, but she bore the pain unflinchingly and kept the stool rock steady. The pain was so intense that even a strong man would have quailed, but Bani stayed in that position until daybreak as immovable as a statue. Her arm was completely numb, swollen and bleeding, but she refused to move until finally it was time for the Guru to emerge from his meditation. The Guru became aware of his daughter's presence and could not help noticing her inflamed and bloody arm. When he asked her what she was doing, she simply replied that she had seen one of the pegs of the stool break off. She explained that she was concerned that the Guru's meditation might be hampered by the broken peg, and not finding anything else to support the stool, she had decided to slide her hand under it to keep it stable. The Guru rose quickly so that his daughter could withdraw her hand and looked at the terrible state it was in. Why did you subject yourself to such pain, my child? the Guru asked. You are the epitome of God, she answered fervently. Day and night I am embarrassed because I feel that I am unable to serve you like you ought to be served. My eyes are blessed upon beholding you. My hands are blessed upon serving you. My heart is blessed when you reside in it. My feet are blessed if they bring me to you. The Guru, his heart touched by his daughter's service and devotion, blessed her. Hue prasan bar dayo sujana, santat teri bade mahana, sakal jagat ki hove pooj, Jaiso chade chandrama dooj. Bad asvarj badhetis aage, Jyotin seve sovad paage. Aage bans bikhe nipje hain, Mahabali se jagme hue hain. Sastra gahe dushtan ko ghaave, Apno adik pratap badhaave. Param dharam piri ar miri, Dharay aap de apar tagiri. कल जुग में जह कह जयकारो करे उदाहरण नरन हजारों सोड बंस कह बड़बड़े आई तय कर भगत भले अब पाई The Guru much pleased gave her a boon Flourish and grow shall your clan soon In worship shall creation swoon As glorious as the crescent moon Your clan shall thrive comfort and joy the service of the best enjoy. Generations shall spring forth, the mightiest warriors on this earth. Swords in hand will evil smite, their glory shining brilliant bright. Righteous, kingly, spiritual, brave, bringers of change shall new ways pave. In this age dark their glories raved, everywhere shall be thousands saved. Eternal glory of your tribe, your service bids me to prescribe. Barney's service to the Guru had borne fruit. The Guru's prophecy foretold the dazzling glory of her clan. Barney was ecstatic. Her father was the Guru. His prophecies always came true. She could not believe her good fortune. 
the Guru's prophecy did come true. The seven Gurus who followed Guru Amar Das were all from the family of Guru Ram Das and Bibi Pani. Arthur McAuliffe, writing about the Guru's boon given to his daughter in exchange for her service, puts a slightly different slant on it, adding a small postscript. He invited her to ask a favor. Her request was that the Guruship should remain in her family. He blessed her, saying, Thine offspring shall be worshipped by the world. From the offspring of thy womb shall be born a universal saviour. But thou hast damned the clear-flowing stream of the Guruship, and consequently great trouble shall result. I have heard this flavour of the tale elsewhere as well. Sometimes in Gurdwaras, sick places of worship, where speakers often provide commentary and historical insight, drawing upon traditional Sikh literature. The broad thesis is that B.B. Pani selfishly asked that all the subsequent Gurus come exclusively from her clan. Since Guru Amar Das had encouraged her to ask for a boon, he was honor-bound to grant her wish. But that wish was at odds with the command of Guru Nanak, that the throne of the faith be offered to the humblest and most faithful disciples irrespective of birth. For that reason, Bibi Pani's victory was bittersweet. Her clan was to rule, but it would also have to endure terrible tragedy and pain. We do not have unimpeachable historical sources to tell us what actually transpired. Personally speaking, I find it difficult to reconcile the image of the introspective, humble, and devout Bibi Pani with the notion that she was hungry for power. Yet, it cannot be denied that after Guru Ram Das's ascension, things did change. The writer Harinder Singh Mahboob provides an interesting perspective. On page 953 of his opus, Sajay Rachyo Khalsa, in a chapter titled The Principles of Succession, Mehboob speculates about what might have happened. This is a translation from the original Punjabi. One may wonder why the Guruship stayed within one family after Guru Ramdas. This question is answered beautifully by the divine imagination and the spiritual consciousness of Bibi Pani. As Bibi Pani's blood flowed, when her limbs were crushed under the stool, Guru Amar Das hinted at the rivers of blood that were to flow in the future. Bibi Pani, in a flash of insight, foresaw the martyrdom of her descendants in the pool of her blood. All the pain and suffering that her progeny were to endure was experienced by Bibi Pani at that moment. History bears witness to the fact that even though the subsequent gurus came from one family, they were unequivocal in their commitment to the faith and its principles. 
the bonds of kinship and family were inconsequential in comparison to their diligent service to the Almighty and their followers. The vision of the Gurus to follow in the spilled blood of Bibi Pani and the indication of their martyrdom and suffering cannot be explained in mundane worldly terms. Bibi Pani's intense compassion that manifested itself in her blood and her sacrifice will forever remain a metaphysical mystery. These are the words of a poet rather than those of a historian. I have to confess that I find them deeply satisfying. The Story of the Sikhs is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh, author of the poem Kultar's Mime, which was adapted for the stage and tells the story of the massacre of the Sikhs in Delhi in 1984. The Story of the Sikhs is produced by Almast Media. Our theme music is a rendition of a traditional Sikh hymn by the late Bai Avtar Singh. This episode features a recording in Raga Mia Ki Malhar by Indian classical santor maestro Pandit Satish Vyas. Raga Mia Ki Malhar, it is said, was a creation of Mia Tansin, the legendary court musician of the Emperor Akbar. This rendition of Mia Ki Malhar was recorded at Sarpreet Singh's home in 2005. Bai Avtar Singh, who was visiting Boston at that time, was in the audience during Pandit Satish Vyas's performance. The episode also features a hymn by Bai Avtar Singh, also recorded during that visit. It is in the variant of Raga Malhar that has traditionally been sung at Sikh places of worship. The Story of the Sikhs is sponsored by the Chardli Kala Foundation, a nonprofit that helps young Sikhs in the diaspora understand the values of their faith. Serial entrepreneur Dr. Ratinder Paul Singh Ahuja and the Sawney Family Foundation. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are two things you can do to help us reach more listeners. Please subscribe to the podcast and be sure to write a short review. I am co-producer and audio engineer Erica Wong. In the next episode, we will learn how the Guru Ramdas established Ramdaspur as a great center of the Sikh faith. We will learn of the Guru's unease of the behavior of his oldest son, Prithichand, who was envious of Arjun, his younger brother. For their grandfather, Guru Amardas had prophesied that it was Arjun who was destined for great glory. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.